0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Read and React. I'm Ben Ladner. Joining me on the other line is John Sauber. And joining me on the other line from Chicago, she covers the Bulls for the Chicago Tribune, is Julia Poe. How are you doing, Julia?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. We Listeners may have noticed that despite the fact that they are second in the Eastern Conference, despite the fact that they are 12th in the NBA in net rating and have had a phenomenal season, we have not talked very much about the Chicago Bulls this season um, that will change today. Then we'll be kind of diving into um, so, some of the, the things driving this season and, and no one better to talk to uh, talk about the bulls with than Julia who covers the bulls for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, congratulations, by the way, that you're in, kind of in your first season with Thank that. You. Um, yeah. How has the job been going so far?
1: It's been a whirlwind. Let me tell you, I um, started mid season and I started about three or four weeks before um, COVID just decided to shut down the entire season for the Bulls for a week there. Um, so it's been really a little bit strange, very stop and start, but I, I could not be happier. I love Chicago, love being back in the Midwest. I'm from Kansas City. and Also, just this team is, is so interesting to cover and has a really diverse group of like very interesting players, really, to be able to kind of dive in and, and get to work with.
0: I should ask before we get going, I, I realize I totally blew the, uh,
2: the routine here. John, how are you doing? I mean, you know I'm doing well. The NBA was wonderful last night. We both watched way too much of it, as always. Well, yeah, let's dive into the Bulls. Julia, you mentioned
0: kind of an interesting kind of mix of of characters on this team. They're 12th in net rating with a plus 1.8 point differential. Down to 10th in offense, a lot of that is because some of their key players, Levine, Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, have all kind of missed time recently. They're still 15th in defense right in the middle of the pack. Uh, Much better than either John or I and probably most people expected them to be I think I had them like 22nd coming into the year John uh, notoriously had them in the bottom five of his projections and they're second in the Eastern Conference despite kind of having a lower net rating they're still pulling out games and, and finding ways to win so they trail Miami in the Eastern Conference at second and I think the story right now as, as you kind of mentioned with the COVID thing and now with some injuries is that this team hasn't been whole in a little while so how have the injuries to guys like Zach Levine, Lonzo Ball, now Alex Caruso, Derek Jones Jr. How have that, how has that affected things for this team, both on the court and then maybe like in the grand scope of the season? What does that portend moving forward?
1: Yeah, you know, this team really hasn't been whole almost the entire season. I mean, you come in with Patrick Williams and Kobe White, which obviously not as important as Zach Levine or Alonzo Ball, maybe in the, in the way that you're building that team out, but still, I mean, those are key crucial players for this team. And it's been a lot of adaptation, but I really do think that those Lonzo Ball and Alex Caruso injuries, those are going to sting for a while. There's a lot of pressure on that defense to really be able to hold up to the caliber that it was at at the start of the season. And those are your two top defensive playmakers. Uh, They put so much pressure on the exterior perimeter and on the other side of the ball, they're also really good secondary ball handlers, which now that role is kind of having to be shunted off to I would assume who is a rookie who's doing very well, but is not used to being in that level of a situation in the NBA. And then Kobe White, who has been moving around and had a lot of different expectations. So it's, it's really causing Billy Donovan to have to just kind of play around with this roster, figure out who can fit where and when. Um, but I think they're all just tired of waking up and having, you know, random injuries come in yeah. but the freak one this week was Derek jones jr just fracturing his finger in a non-contact drill it's just it's just crazy it's just the amount of of uh misfortune is is kind of wild right now yeah
0: and that's on top of the knee injury he
2: suffered too against mm-hmm.
1: the hens yeah he was just about to come back from that and then yeah. just you know catches a ball wrong in practice boom six to eight weeks
2: and julia you mentioned caruso and ball being their best perimeter defenders do you think that the way the Bulls have played defensively, do you think that sort of pretends to a team that can be good in the playoffs defensively? You know what I mean? Like the, the idea that you, you're you sort of perimeter focused rather than rim protection focused. Do you think this portends to a team that can succeed in the playoffs, assuming Ball and Caruso can get back by them?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it's really interesting because the way the Bulls defense fits together is it's really deceptive because Ball and Caruso, they do a lot on the perimeter, but they're also helping off-ball a lot. And they make Vucevic a better defender in the post and in the paint because of the way that they help off-ball. Another big defensive loss recently that maybe wasn't talked about as much nationally, but definitely you could see that loss with Javante Green. He does so much in terms of – I mean, he's taking often – the best scorer on another team, he's taking that defensive assignment. And again, he also makes Fuchs just such a better defender with what he can do off ball and just kind of the, the grit and the physicality that he brings. So when there was that little bit where all three of those guys were injured, that's when you saw the defense really struggling the most, just because those three fit together in kind of a unique way to really just kind of terrorize, not just the perimeter, but kind of the way that you can really move the ball through and around the paint uh, it, they, they're just really able to disrupt that a lot
2: and how do you think the the sort of chemistry of all of it works out right like you have you have a much better feel for us obviously of the the sort of boots on the ground aspect of it with with this team how does the chemistry of it sort of impact their ability to to be a good defense and and how could the potential addition of you know you talk about Green potentially coming back later or, or Derek Jones Jr. whenever he come back, but also Patrick Williams who hasn't really played with this group at all. Uh, how do you think that is going to affect this team moving forward?
1: I think just in general, chemistry has been one of the strengths of this team. You can just kind of – I mean, you guys know. You can tell when you watch a team and you can just see that they like playing together, um, and the Bulls definitely have had that, especially in their stronger streaks this year. Um, but I think the big thing is just not having that consistency and you see that in these games, especially in the first or second quarter, where sometimes they just don't quite know where the other guy is going to be if they haven't, you know, if players, if, if, if a Zach Levine, for instance, has not had a lot of time on the court with some of these other guys coming back from injury. So I think that's the main thing is can they build any form of consistency, especially heading into the postseason, and make sure that they actually have everyone on the same page and are, are being able to feel that out? Because guys like Lonzo Ball, who are that talented defensively, they don't really need too much chemistry. They can just make those plays happen. But for some of those other off-ball players, you really need them to, to have that consistency, consistency to be able to just perform at that level, I think.
0: Yeah, Ball and Caruso, to me, were that combination was one of the more pleasant surprises, especially at the start of the season and just how impactful they were on defense. And you know, the Bulls had a top, ten, top five defense for a little while. why it's, it's they kind of was a, so
2: aggressively wrong. Let's just call it what it is. There, yeah, they're um, the it, reason that why I look like an idiot right now.
0: But it's been really interesting because, because like typically you don't see even like a Drew Holiday. You know, some of these elite defensive guards aren't having that kind of team wide impact. Typically, you do yeah. need that that defensive centerpiece, that center who can protect the rim and be versatile, or whatever. Giannis, Rudy Gobert, mm-hmm. Draymond Green, these kind of high end defensive anchors. But the Bulls don't really have that, and yet they've still been an average or better defense all season. And and in fact, they allow the most shots at the rim of any team in the league as a percentage of overall field goal attempts. And yet they're one of the best rim protecting teams by opponent field goal percentage in the league. So this is kind of the thing that I, I can't really figure out with the Bulls. How are they protecting the rim so well? So I guess number one, is it by design that they're giving up that many shots at the rim? Like, is that kind of part of the scheme? And number two, how are they holding op- opponents to such a low field goal percentage around the rim? Is, is Vooch just a better defender than we thought is Derek Jones, Jr. And, and Javante green, are they having that kind of impact? What's behind some of that, that rim protection?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's such a good question. I think so to your first question, I don't think it's by design, but I think it's one of those, I mean, any coach will say when you're formulating your defense, you know that you're just going to have to have a comp- compromises in some areas. Like you can't have, everything and I think that the Bulls knew especially when Patrick Williams went out they knew they were going to be a smaller team this year and so you can't come into games being like okay we're gonna we're just gonna bully guys at the rim with Vooch like that's just that's just not gonna happen so I think that the way that they've designed this defense what they are always talking about is wanting it to be very fast-paced really high energy and to make other teams take really bad shots and I think that's what you see is that Opponents shot selections when that defense is on. Obviously, they've had some really tough defensive games down the stretch recently. But when that defense is on, players like Lonzo Ball, players like, you know, um, like Alex Caruso, even like Io, some of those guys, they make opponents take worse shots. And so I think that that's what you see is that teams are getting to the rim more often, but often the shots that they're getting down there, they're doubled. You've got Caruso coming off of his man to put you into a really tight double. And he's just, you know, hands flying everywhere, smacking at the ball. And you're seeing good players taking less quality shots than you would like. And you can see when that defense is on, I mean, they're just frustrating other teams. Um, The the real question is, will opponents figure that out and figure out those weaknesses, Um, especially when you can just hammer them with size down low, especially when, you know, if greens out, if Derek Jones Jr. are out, I mean, you're kind of looking at just such a size differential that that is a weakness. So they're not, they're not trying to do what they can't do. They know that they don't have the size necessarily to really make that work. So they're, they're just kind of letting that compromise go.
0: Yeah. And the trade-off is that they allow the fourth fewest threes in the league. Mm -hmm. So they're sort of, you know, they're, they're able to take away the second most profitable area of the floor, if not actually the most profitable at the rim.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think it's been a good handoff for them so far this year. That's really a testament to Billy Donovan, just kind of what he's been able to build with, with knowing the pieces that he has so far.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the, the most curious things about that, well, not all that curious, but their their best defensive lineup of lines with over hundred possessions is that group that has Patrick Williams in it. Uh, but I think the, the commonality necessarily isn't Patrick Williams, but it's like, guys like him, guys like Javante Green, those sort of glue pieces you mentioned. Uh, do you think they're in a position that they get connected to Jeremy Grant a lot? Uh, do you think they're in a position to where they they could try to fill that, fill that gap in the meantime or even fill it with someone better than Patrick Williams? Everyone likes to do the Patrick Williams straight up for Jeremy Grant. Right. I like to do it myself personally. Uh, but uh, do you think that's a spot where they could try to potentially upgrade heading into the postseason?
1: Definitely. And I think, I think it's really necessary. We saw, um, I believe that was like a month ago now when the bulls tried to get that um, uh, the season ending exception for Patrick Williams, you know, they were trying to figure out a way to make that work with the cap so that they could maybe bring someone in, but not have to, you know, give up on, on him with the injury. And they, they weren't able to get that, which maybe signals that he could be back in time. I don't know. Injuries are so hard to forecast. So I think when you look at it, Bottom line, they need someone to come in and fill that role. I think at the power forward position, especially with Derrick Jones Jr. being out that long, they do not have any depth at that position, basically, at this point. It's, it's Javante Green or bust right now, and that's just not where you want to be at if you're trying to make a deep playoffs run. Javante Green is an excellent player for what he's expected to do. His defense has been phenomenal, but if they do want to upgrade to that level, and with Javante coming off of an injury or he's been out for a month, this is really a time when you got to start workshopping that because they saw how much the defense was hit when he went down and they had basically no one else at the power forward position. You're just sticking guys in there and kind of hoping and praying that, you know, Alex Caruso can play power forward for a night. I mean, that's not a situation you want to be in when you're in the playoffs.
2: You, you mentioned the the injuries and everything and the That them needing to upgrade does this does their spot in the standings feel tenuous to you at all? Right, I mean, this top six in the East are so bunched together as it is. Does it feel like there's a window where they could drop, you know, to the play in because of? It seems like they've been hit harder by injuries than any team in that top six right now.
1: Yeah, definitely. This right now is definitely kind of a red alert time in terms of what could happen for the Bulls. And I I was saying this and thinking this back, um, you know, when they hit number one in the East. They took that mantle and that position at the time when COVID was affecting everyone else in the league the most, but they had already gotten through most of theirs because COVID hit them, that Omicron uh, sweep, it hit the Bulls about two weeks before everyone else. And then they rose up to number one when other guys are like putting, you know, G League players out on the court and they still had some really, really good wins during that time. It's not like they're, they were playing bad basketball at all, but it did feel very tenuous even when they hit that number one, because just everyone in the league was really suffering at that time. So now with where the East is at and with all of these rescheduled games happening them having to play all these back to backs and then having injuries on top of it. Yeah, they're they're really in that position right now where and then getting back to back wins this week was crucial for them just to for the confidence feeling that they can kind of hold on to that spot.
0: So let's shift now to the offensive side of the ball. This team has been really, really good offensively. And I think what, what's elevated them maybe higher than we expected. It has been their defense, but the offense, I think still has been even better than I expected. And I was projecting, you know, sort of a top five to 10 sort of unit. They've fallen down to about 10th, but a lot of that, like we've talked about is the injuries guys out with COVID at full strength. This has been a top two, top three, top five level of offense, and I think a big reason for that is because of how well DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine have kind of meshed together. I wasn't, I think John, John and I were sort of in alignment on the DeRozan signing coming into the year. It wasn't necessarily that they can't play together. There's only one ball. It wasn't necessarily that, but more of like, can you optimize both of those guys at the same time more than like, is one of them just going to be useless? You know? Um, so how, and, and clearly I think they have figured out a way to optimize both DeRozan and Levine. So how have they done that? What what is allowing those two guys to thrive and have such good seasons playing next to each other?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, first off, it's just what we were talking about earlier about the chemistry. I mean, you can tell when two guys really enjoy playing and working together and they clearly do. Um, They clearly bought in from the start of the season um, and have just been able to really hone that. I think there's a few different things that work when they're on the court I think it really works that they do such different things. Like everyone knows DeMar, obviously what he can do in the mid range. Like that's, that's his sweet spot. You don't have to touch that, but the way that they're able to stretch the court with the two of them, because really when you've got one guy who's just automatic from mid range, and then you've got Zach who can, is very strong from three point range and then can slash the way that he does the rhythm that it creates and the ball movement that it creates it just really stretches defenses because they don't have an area that they can give up. They can't sag off the mid range with DeMar because if you give him an inch, he's just going to, you know, just kill you. That's all he does from that position. Um, And then Zach, obviously that's giving him more flexibility and more space. Also Zach Levine doesn't have to be the guy every single game this year. And I think that, you know, fans and viewers, you know, got so used to him having to just, just pour himself out onto that court every single night for the Bulls and he is bouncy and energetic and just you can tell he's just feeling himself when sure there are games where he has to be the guy but you also have DeMar being there as your backup and often as the guy in the fourth quarter and that's just unlocking a lot a lot for Zach there um it also helps that they have these rotations where you know you can have DeMar kind of running the offense for a bit while Zach's on the bench and then vice versa. You can kind of rotate them in and out. That has been really good. And Billy Donovan's been working a lot on kind of optimizing those rotations so that they have player units that work really well around them. But at at bottom line, I think it's really just giving both of them the freedom to do what they want. And they're both having, playing some of the best basketball I think they've ever played in the NBA now together.
2: So one one of my qualms with a lot of the discourse around DeRozan is that like he he was sort of this awesome in San Antonio and people just kind of weren't paying attention to it and there's been a, a slight drop off actually from a lot of his numbers from then but the biggest thing to me that has been my issue with it is like the the assist rate's much lower and he doesn't seem to be moving the ball as much do you think that is a room of or an area of growth for him that if he sort of can revert a little bit more to that San Antonio sort of you know point guard type uh, Demar DeRozan where this could really elevate the offense to the next level even. Definitely.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I, I think last night's game uh, against Toronto was actually a really good encapsulation of that. I think Booch and Zach had eight assists apiece, and DeMar had seven or it was seven and six, something like that, but they were accounting for nearly three quarters of the assists uh, in a 30 plus assist night. And that really was, especially in the first half kind of the bulls offense at its best. This is a, an offense that wants to be really mobile it wants to be really energetic and fast paced. Again, when you don't have size, that's what you have to do. And so definitely I think that for DeRozan and I think some of those drop offs have happened in these games where when he's the only healthy guy on the court, he has to just kind of like go out there and, and cook sometimes, you know, and just do his own thing. But when he does have the ability to dump and work with, you know, with Vooch and with Zach um, and even to be able to kind of kick out more, I, I definitely do think that that's kind of where he gets into that really good groove and, and the offense clicks as a whole.
0: Yeah, one of the things I've really enjoyed about this team is that, you know, like like you mentioned earlier, there's the symbiosis. You know, it's not mm-hmm. there isn't a LeBron James or a Luka Doncic or a Trey Young, you know, 35 plus usage rate kind of guy on this team. It's, you know, everyone sort of the, the ball moves, guys are getting in different spots on the floor, like you said. And and I think the thing that I maybe underestimated coming in was how much easier DeRozan and Levine could make the game for one another. You know, DeRozan mm-hmm. allows Levine to be more of an off ball Player, You know, kind of a, an on and off ball hybrid, or like you said, he can slash, he can spot up, he can come off screens. He doesn't have to handle the ball on every possession. And he also gives DeRozan space to work in the spots where he likes to be on the floor. And so there is sort of that kind of opening up of the game. And, and it's, it's almost like a cyclical thing where the, the easier DeRozan makes it for Levine, the more Levine is able to make it easier for DeRozan, and, and so on and so forth. And kind of, it has this, this augmenting kind of effect. But I think the the third guy in this mix, which is Vooch, he, he's kind of the one guy that hasn't quite gotten up to speed this year. You know, his efficiency is down. He doesn't seem to be, like in Orlando, he was used to being the hub of the offense. You throw it to him in the post, he's making reads, he's kicking the ball out, he's getting to his his scoring package. It feels like there isn't maybe as much room for that mm-hmm. in Chicago, and he's maybe had to find a little bit of a different role. How has he... Obviously he's struggled this year, but how have you seen him kind of trying to adapt to that new role on a team that obviously is more talented than the ones he played with in Orlando?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that frustration, um, because when it's working, it looks so good. I mean, those good games that he's had this season, they really just do stand out as not just some of the best basketball that he's playing, but also that the team as a whole is playing. Um, I think, you know, when you talk about the role that's kind of where the problem stems from. Billy Donovan, even a month, month and a half ago, was talking about how they still haven't figured out how to fully utilize him correctly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of those things that, you know, it, that's not something that has been that Billy has necessarily spoken about as much recently. But when you look at that and you're, you know, close to midway through a season and you're still trying to figure out how to utilize one of your all stars, I mean, that's a, a bit of a concern point. And you know, the things that work the best for Vooch in this offense are when he's getting into the pocket, when he's able to work in that pick and roll. I think that Zach uh, and him have kind of been figuring out a little bit more of how to get that to work. He and DeMar have been figuring that out, but just getting him to work in the offense really seems to depend on who they're playing rather than just on Vooch executing. And that I think is a concern when you look at that, because, you know, obviously you have to change your tactics for different teams, but it really does seem night and day, the games where Vooch is, you know, getting in the pocket, he's able to really, you know, just pick his times when he wants to kick that ball out, selecting the times that he wants to post up. It's just when he's on, he's on, but the games that are off, it's like he can disappear into a game and you can see the frustration. And he, he carries that very, very visibly. Um, Last night was a big moment for him to be able to hit the three to ice the game. Um, but when when it's you know, when you're this deep into a season and you're still trying to figure out how to make that piece work, I think that's one of those red flags of just how deep can this team go if they can't figure that out.
0: yeah. and I, I think one of the unsung guys in this offense, it's weird he's he's kind of gone from being one of the most overrated players in the league as a rookie to now one of the most underrated is Lonzo Ball, who yeah. is obviously out right now with the knee injury, one of many bulls injuries. when healthy, I, I think he's been. John and I talk about him all the time as, as this connector, you know, someone who just kind of moves the ball from one spot to the other, very low opportunity cost player. You just plug him in, not going to dominate the ball, makes really quick decisions. And, and to me, as much as DeRozan and Levine work off of each other, he's kind of the guy that greases the wheels of that offense, gets them going in transition, makes the extra pass to a shooter, allows DeRozan and Levine to work to their spots before getting the ball and just kind of takes pressure off of guys How have you seen him making things easier for this offense? And what does it look like when he comes back? Like, What does this offense look like at its best? And and what is Lonzo's role within that? Yeah,
1: it's really interesting because, I mean, Lonzo in a lot of ways, and Caruso helps with this when he's coming off the bench too, but he's a player that can set a pace for this team. And I think that that's something that the Bulls have really struggled with is just – even just bringing the ball up and being able to set a fast pace, you can't have as high of energy when you don't have Lonzo ball on the court and available for games. And so it starts with his defense because so often I think what makes him a lethal defender is that the moment that he does get that ball in his hands, he's looking up and I mean, he will there've been jokes about how he's coming for Justin Fields job because he can just like QB throw that ball all the way down on a dime to a teammate under the, the opposite basket so it starts there. And then from there, it's just the way that he attacks offenses opens up so much because he's forcing defenses to collapse. And the bulls, like you said, because it's such a symbiotic offense, it's not really a team that you can collapse against. Like the moment that you have guys sagging off, someone else is going to be open and is going to be able to make a play the moment they get the ball into their hands. So he just brings more speed to this team and This Bulls team, again, they don't have the size to play slow. They can't really slow the game down, get into a half court offense, and then kind of break you down from there. They just, that's not really their style this year. And that's fine. You don't have to have that style to be a good team, but without Lonzo in there, it's just very visible how much that energy goes down. And it's not for lack of effort. It's just that the things that he's able to do, his vision, the way that he can really take advantage of, you know, just a back cut or seeing someone slip for a moment, he's going to get the ball there. Um, and that that's been a huge loss for them. And I, I really don't think a lot of, especially casual viewers are really going to notice it until he comes back. And then all right. of a sudden this team's going to start popping again.
0: Yeah. And it's not, just, I mean, you mentioned kind of the physical speed, sorry, John, I'll let you go. I didn't mean to cut you off. Not just the physical speed of getting the ball up the court quickly pushing, you know, he he's a fast yeah. player, but it's it's the speed of the decision-making it's mm-hmm. the ability to quickly recognize an advantage and do something with that more quickly than most players probably could. And that's really hard to guard when, the, when, you know, cause the defense is always kind of giving up these momentary windows and exactly. then trying to recover. But when you have a player who can just kind of pass through that window while mm-hmm. it's open before the defense can get back, like that decision-making, especially as a, as a complimentary player, is I think a really, really valuable and underrated part of what makes him a, a valuable player. But John, sorry, I, you can go ahead.
2: No, I I was just curious, Julia, you mentioned you know Vooch and and you were talking about Vooch before and, and sort of their need to play with speed. He's kind of the antithesis to that, right? Like he's methodical, his decision-making is a little slower, especially when he works out of the high post. Do you see a world where their best lineups, their closing lineups in playoff games, their most important moments in playoff series don't include Vooch to sort of Optimize the way they play defense, but also to allow them to just kind of run and go.
1: Yeah, I, I could definitely see scenarios where that would fit. I think it would really depend on the game. Um, but I don't I don't see this team doing that down the stretch purely honestly for what we saw last night with him being able to hit um, that you know that dagger to, to ice that game. This is a young team when you take players like Vooch off the court. And it, I think is when you get into those situations, you know, if, if Vooch isn't on the court, you're looking at someone like, you know, a Kobe White or an I maybe being on the court instead. And those are players who are still growing and still learning a lot. But when you look at the, the veteran experience that you want to have on a court, I still think they're going to go with Vooch. Um, you know, they're, they're really trying to figure out how to get them to work in those areas. And maybe it's just a fit that's not going to work, but they have definitely shown how much they're going to keep trying to push for
0: that.
2: Yeah, I think yeah, the and that's one- why that that Grant addition that I mentioned earlier, I yeah. think would be so helpful for them. You know what I mean? You play him at the five then when you want to go slow, when you want to go fast. And I think Vooch has his matchups, right? Like if they play the Sixers in the playoffs, like somebody's got to check Joel Embiid and uh, yeah. Jeremy Grant is not doing that. Uh, and even Vooch, you know, probably isn't doing that. But he's he What about Alex the Caruso? <laughs> Put <laughs> listen, Caruso Car-
1: on Embiid. I want to yeah, see it. I, <laughs> I
2: would love it. As a Sixers fan, I would very much love that. I, I you know, I think that is the best strategy moving yeah. forward. Tell whoever you need to <laughs> that this is a great idea. Well, you know,
0: I'll, I want to let you finish that thought, but there is kind of the, something to the idea of putting a smaller guy on Embiid because you know you're going to double anyway. So you may as well just put a small guy on him and bring the second defender because you can't cover him even with your biggest guy one-on-one. You know, So I, maybe there is something to the Caruso matchup with
2: Embiid before this turns into a Sixers discussion as this podcast always does. uh, He's just, he can see over guys. And that is such a matchup advantage for him. You know what I mean at this point that like he would cook them so quickly, but again, I don't want to turn this into another Sixers podcast (laughs) as I am one to do. You make a good point though. I I think
0: I was going to say the grant addition potentially, you know, that's maybe the one potential caveat to, or the one potential thing that could move Vooch out of that, closing five is if they get someone, you know, a combo forward who can slide between the four and the five and give them a little more versatility, not necessarily all the time, but in the right matchups. And and speaking of which, I want to close with this because we're running out of time. How do these guys match up with some of the other contenders in the East? Like what does a Brooklyn Chicago series look like? Who? What's the personnel that guards Kevin Durant and James Harden and maybe Kyrie Irving, depending on which city the game is being played in? How do they match up with a Giannis? What what kind of personnel can they throw at him? Who were who the best options against some of these individual superstars in the East and, and these other, you know, potential title contenders in the Eastern conference?
1: Definitely. I mean, we've, we've seen uh, previews obviously of both the Brooklyn series and what that Bucks game, uh, what, you know, what that Bucks game was able to tell us. Uh, first off, it's fun. Clearly um, those games have been with the exception of the recent Brooklyn game. I mean, those games have been, really just a blast to watch. Um, and especially that Bucks matchup, I think, you know, this is where it's so interesting because half of the players that you just mentioned, the guy that guards them is Javante Green. I mean, again, he, he's maybe not who's talked about the most with this Bulls team, but he's often the guy that's on Giannis, that's on Kevin Durant. I mean, he picked up Trey Young one game. I mean, he just kind of guards everyone as a Jack of all trades defender, um, which is so interesting because he's not the defender that people talk about necessarily as much with this Bulls team. So I think defensively, you're definitely going to see Javante taking some of those tougher, especially some of the larger, tougher defensive roles, Vooch is often not matched up like for like with, you know, the other big man on the other team. Yeah. Um, and then the big questions from there come down to will Caruso and ball be back in time, be healthy in time and doing well to defend because you know, when you look at a game against Brooklyn, for instance, if you've got Ball and Caruso out there to kind of handle what Harden and what Irving can do, um, that's a very different ball game versus if one or neither of them is available. We obviously saw that with the last Brooklyn matchup. So I think, you know, I hate to keep harping on the injuries, but with this team, it really is a tale of two teams, depending on yeah. if they have their personnel and if they don't. And I think that's why the next six to eight weeks are just going to be Waiting with bated breath for a lot of Bulls fans.
0: So Milwaukee, Philly, Miami, and Brooklyn. Let's call those the other four. How dare you leave out the Cavs? You want me to put the Cavs in? Okay, let's how put the Cavs. How dare in. you? Let's put the Cavs in. So so Milwaukee, Cleveland, Philly, Brooklyn, and Miami. How would you order those teams if mm-hmm. if you're the Bulls coaching staff? How would you order those teams? in terms of your preference of who you'd rather see in a playoff series from number one being, I think there, we have a pretty good chance of beating this team to number five being how the hell do we match up with these guys? Oh man.
1: That's I realize I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. Yeah, that is, that is, no, that is, that is a tough one for the course with Ben. Yeah, that is, that is a tough one. Um, I think after that Milwaukee game, they had a lot to feel confident about in terms of that matchup. Okay. I thought those teams matched up really well together. Um so I think that that would be one of the more tangibly doable ones for the Bulls. Um I think that there's a lot about Brooklyn that can really challenge this team. I mean, we saw that in the last time that they faced against each other. Um so between them and Miami, those games have been very challenging for the Bulls. Uh, Miami was very challenging for the Bulls even when they were at full strength. So I think that that is one that would be very challenging. Um So I would put that one kind of lower in the list of ones they'd want to see along with Philly, because I do think the Embiid matchup is really difficult for this team. I I don't, I don't know necessarily how they handle that. It's going to be a lot of doubles um, and Alex Caruso just, you know, fighting his little headband off uh, the entire time. Um, So I think, you know, I think those two will definitely be the hardest. Um, Miami was very challenging for them earlier in the season, uh, but those games are fun. So um, you know, it, it'll be interesting how they match up. And obviously if things tra- change with the trade window, you know, it could could be a big switch up for the team um, could, you know, help them maybe handle some of those matchups a little yeah. better.
2: John, what about you? Uh, I, I think I'm with Julie on that. I think Brooklyn and, and Philly are sort of the nightmares because they just don't have the the sort of personnel. Uh, and, and the MB question is one they don't have an answer to. Not many teams do, but I mean, Vooch is, probably getting eaten alive, uh, unfortunately for him. Uh, I I also think Milwaukee, Milwaukee's interesting because you can kind of get away with having Vooch on the court there, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can can sort of put him on Giannis and just help on him constantly, you know, and and let him back off six feet, you know, have him stand at the free throw line, not go past it and contest when he shoots. Uh, But yeah, Cleveland is... I think Cleveland probably is a is a really bad matchup for Chicago. W- worse than you would expect, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, because of the size. Be- yeah, the size is just they don't they don't have answers for Allen. They don't have answers yeah. for Mobley. They don't have answers even for marketing because he's going to be able to shoot over everyone. Uh Darius Garland probably draws Caruso in that series. And you know, I- I'm curious to see how Caruso's uh defense gets called in the playoffs. I've complained before that he's sort of so in guys' jerseys that he gets away with more fouls than he should, right? Like he is he's committing fouls and they, they don't go call it because it's like, Oh, look at him being scrappy and, and all that, you know? And, and I would be curious to see how that will play in the playoffs when he can probably get away with even more. But I do think that that sort of size would, would just be a, a big issue for Chicago.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I sort of, am a little on the opposite end of the spectrum from you guys. I kind of think I kind of like the way they match up with Brooklyn. I mean, as well as you can like the way anyone matches up with Brooklyn, just because, you know, Derek Jones Jr. Like could plausibly, do a decent job on Kevin Durant. They've got the two defensive guards for Kyrie and Harden. And they, you can sort of draw the lines of how they match up and, you know, Brooklyn's not going to kill them with their size on the interior or take advantage of Vooch or anything. So like, I, I could see that being somewhat of a favorable matchup for,
2: for Chicago. Before we close out here, just real quick, Caruso's absolutely fouling out in three of those games against Harden. If, if they <laughs> yeah. play no, he's probably the Kyrie matchup,
0: I think. Um, well, in, in
2: three of the games.
0: Well, yes. Um, or, yes. or four, you never know. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we will wait and see how all this shakes out. I think either way, the Bulls are are kind of squarely in that, that championship hunt in the Eastern Conference. Maybe a rung or two below Milwaukee and Brooklyn. I frankly think pretty much everyone in the East is a rung below Milwaukee, but we'll wait and see. I, I think the Bulls, certainly they've exceeded both mine and John's expectations and looking forward to seeing how the rest of the season unfolds for them. Until then, Julia, thanks for joining us. This was an awesome conversation. I appreciate you making the time. Uh, Tell the people where they can keep up with you.
1: Yeah, so you can uh, read my work at the Chicago Tribune and you can follow me on Twitter at by Julia Poe. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: All right. Thanks again to Julia for joining us. That was a really fun, insightful conversation on the Bulls, who again we haven't really talked about this year at all. So it was good to kind of catch up on them, albeit in in their somewhat injured state right now, and kind of get a sense of what that team is and kind of what to expect. We didn't really get a chance to dive into that last topic because of time constraints and whatnot. But how would you put those teams in order in the Eastern Conference? Let's even include the Bulls and then maybe take a step back from that and, and look at how the Bulls match up with those other teams. But the Nets, the Cavs, the Bucks, the Sixers, the Heat. How how do you how would you put those teams one through five in terms of the one through six? One through six in, in terms of how how much you like the matchup from the bulls perspective
2: oh we're doing just i thought we were doing ranking the six teams and then we can go either way yeah let's let's rank the six teams and then do it for matchups for just the bulls because i think yeah you know they're they're all separated by two and a half games so it's like you know they could all end up in any number of orders and the hornets are only two games back of all of them so it's not crazy that they catch them either um are we saying for just the playoffs
0: yeah, let's say in a playoff series, you know, if are we going into the playoffs, health? who is the most likely to win the
2: championship? And are we assuming health?
0: Yeah. I mean, I uh, yeah, assume health. Unless a guy okay. is just gonna miss the whole like Patrick Williams. I'm probably not including him. Kyrie, we're only including half of him. You know, well, hold but... on.
2: Well, it depends. We might be including like 57% or 43%, depending That's on true. if they're home yeah. or away. Yeah, some amount of Kyrie. Yes. The I'm I'm not even going to go into that, Uh, (laughs) but uh, I mean the Bucks have to be one, and then I think you could make a reasonable case for the rest of the five teams, and that's where this gets tricky. I'll go Miami at two, just because I trust their defense to be really good in the playoffs. I trust that Jimmy Butler will create looks for himself and others in the playoffs. I think the Nets might be five. I think the Sixers are probably three. The Cavs at four. No, the Bulls at five, the Nets at six. Well, and, and and here, so hear me out on this. I guess I should probably explain this rationale. Among that group, the, the Sixers have the the best player right now, I would say. Like the guy playing the best right now, anyways. I think so, too. Uh, and yeah. But they don't have the supporting cast the Heat do. Uh and and I think that is it is going to be a big issue. So I would rather have the Heat. Uh the reasoning above the the Bulls is is pretty simple. I think I think that defense is going to fall apart more in the playoffs. Like I think the rim pressure is going to be a much bigger issue once they get to the postseason. We we brought up Jeremy Grant a lot with Julia, but I I think that really is a move that they need, to, even if it means giving up Pat Williams and something else. I think they should do it. Um, if they're because it seems clear they're going for it with this core, so they may as well go the rest of the way in. Um,
0: and, and by the way, I think if you'd said when the season started, the Bulls are going to be in position to trade Patrick Williams for a win-now player. We would have said don't do that because they're not going to be good enough for that win-now player to move the needle. But I think that's changed now. I think the Bulls are good enough that if they get a Jeremy Grant, they are squarely in the championship picture.
2: Yeah, but I think that's also what they need to be squarely in the championship picture. And I I agree.
0: I would also trade Patrick Williams for Jeremy Grant, to be clear.
2: I think the top two teams in the East have a good shot of winning the title. I think three and four with as crazy as it sounds with the Sixers and Cavs, like I think also have a decent shot, maybe like a 5% chance for those two teams. Um, And as currently constituted, I don't know that the Nets or Bulls have much of a chance of winning the title. Uh, The Bulls have that upgrade available, right? Like they can go get Jeremy Grant that I think really would elevate them to that level. Or if they got a player uh, sort of in line with that, you know, an Aaron Gordon type guy, uh, to help protect the rim, because otherwise, team these teams are going to put pressure on the rim all day against them and get whatever they want. Um, but yeah, so the so the Cavs at four is a lot on like the defensive baseline that they bring and that they give you in the postseason. I think matters more than the offensive upside of both the Bulls and the Nets. Uh, and honestly, I'd rather have the Bulls over the Nets because I don't know about you, I just don't trust the Nets at all. Like I, I don't I don't trust them to not like get swept if they face like if they're the six and they face you know philly or miami falls to that at three you know like i a sweep is a reasonable to me like for as good as kevin durant is and as awesome as he is they're putting so much on him and james harden and the defense is so bad and honestly if i had to pick a team to fall into the plan given kevin durant's health it's probably the nets and i think the bulls also fall into that just because of the health issues uh, like guys like caruso and bobbing out for so long is really going to hurt them same with Derek jones but but they have enough of a, a gap. They have a four game gap, whereas the Nets only have two and a half games. That I think they should be fine. Uh, but yeah, I think there's like a real chance that the Nets fall to the play-in, and we can you know talk about the Nets more in the future. But I am seriously concerned about their outlook the rest of the regular season and what that would portend in the playoffs. Because if they like, if they somehow fall to the play and are like, yeah, you get the Heat or the Bucks, good luck.
0: I agree with you that the Heat and Bucks, or I should say Bucks and Heat in that order, are the two. Probably the, the two teams I feel most confident in Bucks. I think, as I've said before, are the clear favorite in the Eastern conference, despite the fact that they're currently fifth in the East standings right now, which feels kind of strange to say, but at full strength, they've been pretty good against pretty much anyone. I, the thing with the heat Miami's talent to me is not quite at the level of what we would typically associate with a championship team. You know, they don't have a Giannis or a KD or one of these top five players. They don't even have, Arguably, they don't have a top 10 player, and they certainly don't have two top 10 players. What I like about them, though, is their depth, which coming into the year was something that I was kind of concerned about. I wasn't sure if they would have any depth outside of their starting lineup. Turns out guys like Gabe Vincent and Max Strus and Dwayne Dedman are totally fine, and you know, maybe I should have had more confidence in quote-unquote heat culture to turn random guys into rotation players, which they have. I also like their versatility, and I don't mean just... Their ability to switch and guard multiple positions, although they can do that, but it's their ability to play multiple styles, and I think you need that in the playoffs. I think that's what allowed Miami to go to the finals in 2020, or at least part of it. They could play Milwaukee's style. They could play Boston's style. They could play the Lakers' style. They could sort of shapeshift and play in these different kinds of ways because of the, pers- the versatile personnel that they had. So I think whether you want to play a traditional defense, whether you want to play more of a switching defense, whether you want to go ISO heavy on offense, or whether you want to move the ball on offense, they can just they can play a lot of different styles, I think, in a way that even the Bucs can't. Right? The Bucs are kind of a one-style team, and that style is really good. But some of these other teams in the East, they sort of play the way they play. And I think the way Miami plays is that they can play any style. You know what I mean? So I I like that about them. I think Cleveland is clearly at the bottom of this list as much as I've enjoyed Just
2: their regular season. Really quickly before you go into Cleveland, yeah. could you imagine if Miami fell to the three seed and the Bucs were the six? Because that's not, like, that's well within the realm of possibility. And do you, can you imagine- the narrative shift that would happen if the bucks got bounced the first round by the heat again. Oh my god. Yeah. And granted yeah, I think it's a different heat team than the one that beat the bucks, but when I think it's a different bucks team too, so I think it would be really unfair yeah. to them.
0: But no, I I think my I mean we haven't talked about them, you know, like the bulls, we haven't talked about them much this season, but the heat are currently the one seed in the Eastern Conference and I think have the best net rating in the conference as well. To me the Cavs are at the bottom of this list. I just think as much as I've enjoyed them in the regular season, I, I they don't feel like a like a particularly strong playoff team to me. That said, against a team like the Bulls, I could see that being a competitive series because they could cause some problems with their size. Even for the well, I mean, they just
2: they caused problems last night for the Bucks with their size, and the yeah. Bucks are huge.
0: And they, no, they I mean they're them.
2: gonna do that. They they yeah. they ran the Bucks off the court, and that's what like listen, I, I understand your apprehension about the Cavs. Second best net rating in the Eastern Conference right now. They're like, I think at some point we just have to acknowledge that like this is potentially the Suns team of last year, where it's like, yeah, but wait to the playoffs, wait to the playoffs, and then maybe they're just really good, and maybe Darius Garland's just really good, and maybe Jared Allen and Evan Mobley are just really good, and it all works really well together. Uh, I would I would push back on them being clearly the bottom team. I think it's I think they're in the second tier that includes them, the Bulls, and the uh, the Nets. But I, I do think like. I would take them over those two teams at this point.
0: Yeah, I just think their offense its is that defensive be- baseline. It is, but uh, I mean, I think there are things that especially the Bucks and the Heat could probably do to really stall out their offense. And they really only have one high level creator and they don't have a particularly strong wing defender, which makes me skeptical as much as I think they could wield some size advantages against the Bucks and the, or, I'm sorry against the Bulls and the Nets their lack of a true, like a really good wing defender could leave them vulnerable against the Bulls and Nets who have really, really good wing scorers.
2: I would love to see this team acquire Eric Gordon. I think he would be massive in that. But I actually disagree about the wing defender. I, I think they have Evan Mobley to do that. Uh, and Maybe I think so. you, you don't even suffer. That's, that's the beauty of the Cavs, right? Like, and how awesome they are. You don't suffer when you take Evan Mobley away from the rim because Jared Allen's there. And you're fine. And then Laurie Markinen becomes the weak side rim protector, who's not great, but has size and is smart as a defender. Like they are well equipped to, I think, defend all five teams. And that being said, I do think the heat and bucks, like you said, would cause problems, which is why I have those two teams, as the, the top two in the conference. Uh, but I think they like I said, the the Nets would have issues with them. I think Mobley is kind of the perfect guy to guard Kevin Durant um and you know if you get someone like gordon then you have a a sort of hardened checker you know not a stopper obviously but could you imagine if this team made a move for jeremy grant and just went massive like just utterly enormous jeremy grant laurie markinen evan mobley and uh jared allen because functionally defensively you do have a two and a three right like mobley and yeah and grant can guard wings three elite rim protectors, two weak side, one one primary rim protector and Jared Allen. Laurie and spacing the floor with Darius Garland is like your weak spot, but who cares if you've got like all of the length in the world behind him? I think that is like the ultimate proof of, and, and it, I don't know that it would ever happen or that it will ever happen, but I think that would be the ultimate proof of this was never about small ball. This was about getting five guys on the court that are skilled.
0: Yeah, and like we said a couple episodes ago, I'm, I'm really digging the return to, To big ball, if we want to call it that, that's not as catchy of a name as small ball. I think, speaking of big ball, Philly is really the interesting team of this mix because outside of their best player, this is not a very good basketball team right now. And yet, like you said, they might have the best player in the conference right now. Right now, I think they clearly do. They might have the best player in the conference, period. And they just have some, they have a guy who like none of these teams can deal with, even the Bucs. Even the Cavs, the two teams on this list with actual size, what what are what is any team in the East gonna do against Joel Embiid other than double team? Like we said with Julia, maybe the answer is just you put someone on Embiid Triple and you team. know you're gonna double, and so maybe it doesn't matter who the primary defender is because you're sending two or three guys anyway. And and I think that'll be really interesting to watch because as we've said, Embiid has has taken a step forward as a passer this year. And I think that'll really tell us how real that step is when he's facing two and three defenders in the post, because no one can stop him one-on-one. Can he consistently make the reads required to find open shots for his teammates? And maybe more importantly, can those teammates actually make those shots?
2: Well, and, and that's the the sort of nice thing about for, even though the team is bad around him, generally speaking, they all can shoot right. And the only one that can't is Matisse Thibel and he's wreaking enough havoc defensively that I think it makes it worthwhile. Um, now, they're not the most willing shooters on the planet, but there aren't many guys in the NBA. I'd rather have uh, taking a, an open three than Seth Curry. He's statistically the best shooter of all time, the volume I understand notwithstanding. Uh, but I, I, I do think they're they're also in the position to elevate their ceiling the most with a trade, right? Like they are one move away from being like, all right, well, this is in the top three, right? Like like if they were to make the the rumor like Simmons and Harris for uh, – Barnes, healed and uh, Halliburton deal, I think that elevates them to that level because you improve at the, the uh, Harris spot, you add another shooter and healed around Embiid, who, by the way, can space deep behind Embiid too. Like you can put him on the wing like four feet behind the arc and allow him on the strong side with Embiid. Um, and, you know, then Halliburton is sort of the guy that goes right into the lineup that he didn't have in Simmons to sort of, uh, again, be a, a great fit around Embiid. So they have the highest ceiling, I would say, of any of these non Bucks heat teams because they, they can actually do something about it. Um, you're right though. The, 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 passing has been the difference uh, because he's getting doubled. Like this is not like what happens in the playoffs. It's he's getting doubled now and teams are getting roasted for it. Um, I, I do. I sent you the, the clip of this the other day, just sort of the brilliance of, of him as a basketball player and him and Jokic are so special with their basketball IQ. And I don't think MB gets the credit he deserves for that, especially with how quickly he ascends. You know, he, Jokic has this bag of tricks that he can always go to and everything. Embiid is adding to his game constantly, right? Like, Jokic sort of is what he is and builds off of it and, you know, finds new layers of it. Embiid just adds new skills, right? Like, he just starts doing things that doesn't make sense or that don't make sense. He, uh, he, he looks more athletic than he had for the last three years uh, but I sent you the clip of him having Furkan Korkmaz and Charlie Brown Jr. switch sides prior to a play to make sure Corkmaz would be on a strong side to make a pass. And then he hit the pass perfectly while driving to the hoop. Like that's not something, uh, you know, Jokic can do that. It doesn't look like that though. You know what I mean? Jokic does it with this sort of, he's not slow-mo, but a slower pace and like sort of methodically moving and the defense isn't reacting properly. And beat looked like a guard attacking the rim and hitting a, an open shooter on a kick out. And like, I've said this before. We don't know how long his prime is going to be. We don't know how long he's going to be this good. The injuries haven't been really a major issue in about four or five years, but I think there is uh, there is something really special about what we're watching and the fact that the roster mostly sucks outside of him. And here we are talking about them in the top tier of the Eastern conference.
0: Yeah. I liked the comment you sent to me with that video when you said Jokic could never do this because his teammates would miss the shot.
3: (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: is the Bulls episode after all. So how do we like the matchup between Chicago and these other five teams? I think clearly Milwaukee is kind of its own thing just because how, of how good they are. But I think Philly probably is the worst matchup because of Embiid. But as I was kind of saying earlier, the Brooklyn matchup, there's always the chance Brooklyn can just hit a ton of shots and go crazy. But personnel-wise, I don't hate that matchup from Chicago's perspective Because Brooklyn's not trying to get to the rim. They want to get to the mid range and shoot there. They want to shoot, you know, kick out from three. And those are kind of the areas of the floor that Chicago defends well because they have those good individual defenders, if not that interior
2: anchor. See, I think they have one guard that can guard either Harden or Kyrie. Lonzo Ball is not that good of an on ball defender, right? Like he is more of a help defender, he's more of a team defender. Uh, And I think that's where you sort of run into the issues. where I think he would struggle in the three or four games that Kyrie Irving would play, um, I, I also think like Javante Green's not doing anything to Kevin Durant. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's just stretch. like he, he's just like Like if Kevin Durant sees Javante Green, he's like, oh, I'm getting fifty tonight. <laughs> like that's. I I don't think that they have any real answer for him. And when they get to the rim, Vooch is waiting. Cool. Like, well, that's what you I'm know saying. What I mean? But like, they're not trying to get to the rim. Yeah, but Kyrie is. And I mean, sometimes he isn't, but he is. And James Harden's trying to get to the rim, you know, uh, Kevin Durant's not, but I, I don't think that Harden isn't like Harden is not settling for as many long twos as Durant is or anything like that, even as Kyrie is. So I do think they're trying to get to the rim. Some of those guys are and take into account like Lamarcus, Lamarcus Aldridge can pull Vooch away anyways. So you have, you know, the, those guys that are cutting and moving off the ball constantly, like the Bruce Brown suddenly become more dangerous um, when they're moving behind Vooch. Uh, so I, I I don't know. I think that is a a sort of a nightmare matchup because for as bad as the nets are defensively, like Bruce Brown would be fine against either of the guards. And if you put Kevin Durant on DeMar DeRozan, he's probably going to try because it's the playoffs. Uh, and I think that, you know, makes all the difference in the world.
0: Let's see Miami. How, how do the bulls match up with Miami? Poorly.
2: (laughs) That's another team that's just going to like they're just going to beat them up with pick and rolls. They're going to put Vooch in situations where he can't defend on the perimeter. Caruso is probably going to draw Butler. Alonzo could actually be more helpful chasing around like Tyler hero, Duncan Robinson. Um, But they don't have a real answer for Kyle Lowry. Uh, You know, they, they don't have a real answer even for Bam. Like they just, uh, PJ Tucker is going to stand in the corner and they'll probably put Vooch on him. And then it's like, well, then who's getting out of bio? Is it, Javante Green, and again, yeah, okay.
3: Well, the other thing, <laughs> like when, that
2: when is. we
0: talk about you, you have Lonzo and Caruso as your defensive players, does that mean you're playing DeRozan at the four? Because yes. Caruso typically comes off the bench, which means that you're not playing Derek Jones Jr. at the four, or That's you're true. not playing Vooch at the five, and you're just playing super small, which the Bulls can do, but are they starting the games that way? Are they closing games that way? You kind of run into an issue where if a team has more than, like, one or two good wings – you sort of run out of options because eventually DeRozan and Levine are going to
2: have to guard someone. Well, and I think I think part of the issue with Caruso too is I, I again I mentioned earlier about sort of how he gets in guys' jerseys and is fouling more than he gets called for. For I, honestly, I have no idea why he's not getting called for foul. You know what I mean? Like he is in guys' face, you bring in this their up jersey. all the
0: time, and I love it. What
2: drives me nuts, you know what I mean? Because no other defender gets away with that. Uh, and, and he's always sort of, like, in guy's jersey and, and and all that, and I wonder if in the playoffs, like, like James Harden's just going to catch him. You know what I mean? Like, he's just going to get that to be called a foul. Kyle Lowry will catch him. Jimmy Butler will just catch him, and, you know, I, I think those guys are too good, and Caruso might be this, you know, uh, super energetic, great on and off ball defender in the regular season, and in the postseason he might be a better energetic off ball defender and a little less on ball because he's going to, the, the the level of, of player you're going to ask him to guard for like 36 to 38 minutes is just not a guy that he can hang with.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to some news. The trade deadline is quickly approaching. It's in about 13 days. If my recollection of when the trade deadline is, is correct. We had a report earlier this week. Well, there, there's there been some rumbling over the last couple of weeks about James Harden and potentially not being super thrilled about the state of the nets right now, which Honestly, I can't really blame him for not being super thrilled about that, although he's part of the reason that the state of the Nets is what it is. Anyway.
2: Oh, I disagree with that. Really? Yeah, I think he's definitely not as good as he was last year, but like, I think almost the entirety of the reason is the, the, the roster construction around them and Kyrie not playing half the games.
0: I think that's part of it. I also think part of like it I is I think James he's, Harden
2: not trying on defense and never running back in transition. Yeah, but but that's like that's always been a thing. You know what I mean? That isn't a sudden change. Like when they acquired him, they this that was part of the deal, right?
0: Right. Like, but that's but that is part of why the Nets are yeah. The, that's fair. If, but at any rate, Woj came out with a story this week, essentially saying the Nets are not listening to. I think the word he used was overtures for James Harden on the trade market. He went on to say. The Nets don't plan to engage any team, including the Sixers, that might try to pry Harden ahead of his pro- possible free agency this summer. Sources said, obviously Harden will be a pending free agent. He did not sign an extension last offseason, which I thought was notable. But I, th- th- you, you really, you've been kind of sounding the alarm a little bit on this report um, and what it could mean for Harden's future in or outside of Brooklyn. What what was notable to you about
2: this? I mean, the fact that Woj reported something that sort of felt like unsubstantiated rumor, right? Like just like rumors that get tossed around the league. I'm sure it happens all the time, right? Like where guys' names get floated and all that. And then when Woj reports on it and then specifically emphasizes like that it's not Philadelphia, you know what I mean? That they're not going to listen. I think there's something to that. And then, uh, you know, the the sentence in the story from Woj, the Philadelphia 76ers plans for a – potential pursuit of Harden this summer have been no secret secret anywhere in the league. Like that is to me, very telling, right? Like that is clearly something if it's not it, th- that to me says that this report is not from the Sixers side, that it's from other league circles and league executives and whatnot. Um, now there's also a decent offer or decent chance. This is, pen- or this is, uh, you know, uh, Daryl Morey posturing sort of trying to get Darryl the offers juiced up. He I know. Never never, right. Uh, but the there's a chance he's doing that to get assets at the deadline. I also think there's a chance he's doing it to get assets at the deadline and then flip those assets for Harden uh in a potential opt-in and trade like with Chris Paul to the Rockets or Chris Paul to the uh to the Clippers a few years ago. Um I don't know if this feels like there's something here. You know, it doesn't feel like a usual like. Uh star's name, like, you know, how cat always gets bandied about uh, and he like has never asked for a trade from Minnesota or anything like that, but his name always gets tossed in. It's like, Oh, watch him as the next guy on the move. This feels like greater than that. Um, it, it feels like every reporter has reported this on some level, like the, there's some level of interest. And I do think that the, the phrasing Woj used is obviously intentional, but also noteworthy. Uh, in that uh, he said it's a resolve. They're, them not listening to any trade overtures is a resolve rooted in Harden's repeated insistences to ownership and management that he is committed to staying and winning a championship with the franchise. So they're not trading him because Harden keeps telling him he's staying. he's staying. Meanwhile, others have reported, and I know take this not even with a grain of salt, with a jar of it, but Kendrick Perkins has said that like Harden's camp is telling people that he's he wants to be in Philly. Uh, I'm sure Perk heard that. I'm sure the people who t- told Perk that had reason to tell him that too. You know, like they they knew he would just say it somewhere and it would get that message out there. Um, but yeah, I think it is very noteworthy considering Harden didn't sign an extension in the preseason, uh, that everyone knows about the Maury-Harden relationship uh, and that it feels like things, even less so from like this the trading forum side, it feels like things are a mess in Brooklyn and messier than it is getting credit for sort of in the national discourse, right? Like it's the discourse around the nets right now is, yeah, they're not as good because Kyrie's not playing and KD's out who everyone else perceives as like a top MVP candidate, even though you and I disagree on that. Um, every, episode. Know, every episode, every episode, gotta get it in there. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta, listen, if we don't say it, who's gonna. Um, but no, I, I think, I think they are a bigger mess than has been heralded. And like, I don't know, getting bounced in the first round, I think is kind of likely at this point. Wasn't expecting
0: Kendrick Perkins name to come up on this episode, but I'm glad it did. (laughs) Um, Shout out to Perk. You know, I I should clarify and and amend something I said earlier. Harden won't necessarily be a free agent this offseason. He can be a free agent this offseason if he opts out of his $47.4 million player option. And I think that is a notable distinction because he might opt into that. Like, I'm not. I'm, I'm not think convinced if, that he's going he to opt in, out and hit the open market.
2: I think if he opted in, he would be getting traded. I think it would be an opt in trade because if not, then he can just opt out and they're like giving him the max. Well, that's what I was going to ask you though. They're giving him the max. I don't even think it's worth the discussion. Okay. Yes, yes, not Could even you worth. You give Harden the, the max? I mean, I've told, I've said before that any like top 15 player, I would. So yes. Okay. And and now, are you paying for it in ages 36 or 37? Maybe. But I also think his like his game doesn't age that badly because he, he was already never that athletic. And he's already like not that athletic right now. And he's still a top 15, top 12, whatever he is, player in the league. And so like what is there to get worse? He's a known, like, yeah, he likes to to party and everything like that, but he's like a worker and like a guy that really like it eats it's been reported a lot that it like eats away at him when when he doesn't get to play, like when he's hurt and can't play. So I'm not as concerned about his aging as some others would be, he could like without the defense agent to like an offensive Chris Paul, you know what I mean? Like pretty easily with the level of passer that he is with the level of shooter that he is with his ability to create separation with things like with his craft, basically. He yeah. is a, he's sort of always been a crafty veteran even when he was like 23, 24 years old.
0: Yeah. I'm a little more concerned. I, I think what we saw at the start of this season, he's clearly moved past that for this season, but an age 36 Harden might look something like that. And that is not nearly a max level player. And so, like you said, you're sort of, you're
3: but that's, taking That's a hit.
2: the fourth year of, that's the last year of the contract. I think if you're, yeah. if you're taking that hit in the last, well, the Nets, the 37 would be the last year. Uh, but like, if you're taking the hit in the at age 36, like, okay. Cause you're still probably getting an elite player 32, 30 or 33, 34 and 35.
0: Yeah, I I think I probably would feel comfortable doing that, but I would have a little bit of trepidation, and and maybe that is ultimately what I mean. I don't think the Nets would would bluff about that. I think they just give him the max because well, a Joe Psy seems pretty willing to spend. Yeah, he does not care pretty much any roster, and and B, you know, you don't want to piss off your second best player by
2: not giving him the contract he wants when he's arguably worth it. He he also like you could convince me that he's their best player. You know what I mean? Like I I don't, or or most important player, I would say, because we've talked about like how good KD is at like bridging the gap between Harden and Kyrie. Well, there's no gap to bridge. If Harden's not there, like he is, he is the one driving offense for his teammates more so than Kevin Durant. Like he is the one creating looks for others and getting them himself. Um, I don't know. He's, he's really good. Still. He's like, he's not a top seven player anymore. No, but like, it's not that far of a drop off from like seven to 12, considering all he's going to be asked for the rest of his career is to be the second best player on a really good team.
0: I didn't bring this up during our awards podcast because we were an hour in and talking about the fifth place on the MVP (laughs) ballot, but James Harden does have a higher usage rate, a higher assist rate and similar true shooting to Kevin Durant. So you could make a statistical case it's not a comprehensive statistical case but you could make a statistical case that he is the most important player I don't think that's the case but like
2: you could you could squint your eyes and kind of see that well and and he's also like if he moved on somewhere else he's probably not taking the bad shots he is in Houston like he's taking more long twos because they let him uh and they've empowered him to I think it's probably better to be like hey go back to how you were playing oh that I can agree
0: I think it's good that he's taking those shots
2: Oh, I don't. I would rather see him try to get to the rim. I, honestly, I think he he could draw just as many fouls as he used to. He's down a little bit from that. But his true shooting percentage has dropped to 58. point. It's dropped below 60% for the first time since 2016 this season. Yeah. And he's only shooting 42% from the floor, but he's shooting 58.4% true shooting, which I mean, that's just how awesome of a score is. But the thing is, he he's
0: not as good at the rim anymore. He's not. He doesn't get the same extension. He doesn't get the same explosion. I think
2: the, I think. the rim stuff, or the rim finishing, is less about finishing at the rim and more about getting to the free throw line. That's part of it. That's and that's why
0: his true shooting is lower this year. But I also think just watching him, he leaves a lot of layups short. You know, he he doesn't get at like especially exploding off a of one leg off off the drive. Like do you know he used to be so good at, at wrong footing rim protectors. You know, going left foot, left hand layup those shots. He's not getting the same kind of elevation or extension to the rim anymore. And I think because of that, you know, we, I've already, and and many other people have already kind of criticized him for not being versatile, not being, uh, not having a ton of counters in the playoffs. So I actually kind of think that the mid range jump shot could be a necessary counter. If he's not able to get to the rim as well anymore, having something that he can kind of lean on when he can't get to his three point shot could actually be beneficial.
2: Well, and I will add to the turnover rate, sky high this year. It's almost 20. percent um, yeah. I I wonder the high like, usage rate too. So that's a yeah. lot of turnovers. He, I, well, I mean, 28 and a half percent. It's not. He's had higher, right? Oh, no, like but he's I'm not, saying like
0: it's not Draymond Green having a 15% usage and a yeah, 25%
2: yeah. turnover rate. Uh, I just like watching them. He seems. I mean, he doesn't seem like Houston James Harden at the end, but he does seem less. I don't know. Less interested right, and, and playing for the Nets, like, or in playing basketball, and that does like, again, for a guy who supposedly is uh, a really, a, you know, really dedicated to playing as much as he can, like, I think that's notable, too, and that's when we also started to notice the downturn in Houston, right, like, it's when he started losing interest, um, but yeah, the fact that, you know, we're two weeks before the deadline, and Woj is reporting on it, to me, there's not nothing there, and the fact that it's not a, an unequivocal denial, I think, means there's something there. And I'll be curious to see how this plays out. I think ultimately it probably ends with him, you know, leaving in the offseason uh, and a Simmons trade getting made in some other sh- uh, shape or fashion in the regular season and using those assets to get him. But, you know, I I mean, boy, if, if he leaves, like what a disaster that this era of Nets basketball will have been. Like just a, a complete disaster, and so much of it falls at the feet of Kyrie Irving so much of it <laughs> it
0: all comes back it all circles back to Kyrie irving well no it, it all flats back uh, yes yes it all how how would it come back in a flat setting which is just a it teleporting kind of situation you get to the like end and it, just,
2: it, it all boomerangs back it all boomerangs back
0: <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of uh shooting guards who are not as efficient as they once were let's check in on clay thompson because I, I this is something I want to kind of do periodically as the season goes on. He's only played seven games so far. He missed a couple recently with, I, I think, a minor hyperextension in his knee. It
2: was, it was knee soreness, which is, by the way, that's concerning.
0: Yeah, like, well, I'm surprised they let him play against the Mavericks with knee soreness after he's coming. Although he he is a little while out from the ACL. But still, any injury to Clay Thompson, I'm sitting him until he feels 100%. Like, that's not something I want to mess around with. At any rate, I think it, it's good to kind of check in on his progress throughout the season. As we've been saying, he's not going to hit the ground running. He hasn't hit the ground running. He's not going to be primed Clay Thompson right away. There's going to take a little bit of a ramp up. So last we checked in, he played two games. We both agreed he was shooting too much. We both agreed that he wasn't making enough shots. Um, his stats have gotten slightly better since then. He's shooting 33% from three, which is down. But it feels like he's getting a little bit more acclimated, a little bit more comfortable in the Warriors' offense. Uh, what what have your impressions of Clay been over his last five or six games?
2: I don't know. I'm pretty worried. Like he the the movement is just not there. Like he just he just doesn't move nearly as well. And I know it's only been what three weeks, but like he's been playing basketball full go for over a month now. I don't know, man. I just don't know that he's ever going to move like he did before, and that's such a crucial part of his game. And like you said, that like, stop shooting so many twos. Just stop it. What is he doing? Why is he trying to create so much for himself? And I know Draymond's been out for this stretch, and, like, that's obviously had a massive impact. But to me, he just does not look like himself. Like, he, the, you're right, the shots have fallen more. There was also an 0-7 game against Indiana from three that they lost because he couldn't miss or he couldn't hit shots. The Warriors have looked right essentially once, I would say, since he got back. Uh, that that Cavs game notwithstanding, I think that was a really strange game because Cleveland couldn't hit any open shots. Yeah, like they, they and that was the first open. game back and there's yeah. excitement. And, yeah, yeah, and, but like the, they've looked good for one game back, and that was the most recent one against the Mavs. But even then, like he wasn't moving all that well. He was admittedly playing the the role that he's frankly should be playing more so in that game. But I still have concerns that like that's that's the one off in this scenario because we saw six games before that where he played and he did not look like a guy who contributes to winning basketball frankly he looked like a guy who takes a ton of shots doesn't make nearly enough of them and doesn't defend all that well
0: well that mavs game that's that's why i wanted to bring this up is because i thought that was the best game that he's played since he came back that was clearly And it wasn't it wasn't even
2: close like yeah, how he, much he better
0: comfortable in the offense he was moving the ball he wasn't forcing shots they changed up his rotation pattern a little bit which i thought was interesting but that game he had six assists, which is not far off from his career high, if I'm remembering correctly. But more than that, it was just the way he was moving the ball, the way he was not forcing shots. There were so many times where he'd put the ball on the floor, and I'd think, oh, here we go. He's going to force some you know, contested 15-footer that's going to hit the front rim. And he would kind of probe through the lane, dribble it back out, maybe dump it off to a roll man, maybe kick it out to Jordan Poole or whoever it was. And he really looked like he was playing within the flow of the offense and I wonder if that's him turning the corner or if this is just kind of, like you said, a one-off where he's going to revert back to old Clay. I hope it's the former, obviously. I think the Warriors offense, if he's playing like that and Draymond is healthy and Steph can hit a shot, like that's a really hard offense to guard. And we are still seeing, you know, there was a play in that that Warriors game where Clay comes off a screen, he draws two defenders. The guy who set the screen, I can't remember who it was, gets a wide-open layup, dives to the rim, gets a wide-open layup. That stuff is still happening, even though, like I said, he is shooting 33% from three. I'm not concerned about the three-point shot. Like, that's going to come. I think at worst, he'll be like a 37% three-point shooter with a ton of gravity. It's more, you know, forcing shots. What, What kind of shot selection is he taking? Does he have the burst off the dribble? Can he defend? We saw him defend Luka Doncic a little bit. Why did I say Luka Doncic like that? That was
2: weird. I hated that so much. Yeah, that was weird. Keep this in the pod. I was going to say continue. Luka
0: but then I decided to say Doncic as well, but I'd already anyway. Yeah. He defended Yo, the max point forward a couple of times on a few possessions. <laughs> and he looked alright. I mean, no one is really going to shut down Luka, but he looked okay. Um I thought his defense was so bad off the ball though. That's the thing and that, that was my concern coming in is if he can't be the on-ball guy he's already not a good off ball defender. And so can he, can he work on that to kind of balance out the drop-off that is going to come on the ball? I thought he's at times he's looked okay as a part of the off ball defense. The warriors have a really, just a really competent professional locked in defensive system. So even if he's not a hundred percent clued into that, there's enough around him that I think is going to cover up for some of his mistakes. But, um, Yeah. I mean, in the aggregate, I think still a negative player, not a guy that you want playing at the end of playoff games, but that Mavs game was encouraging. And I think a step forward in the right direction toward him eventually becoming a more viable part of the rotation.
2: Yeah. I I think he, I mean, at the very least they need that to happen, right? Like the player he is now is not helpful, Like, he does not help an NBA team win a title playing exactly like he is right now. Mavs game, notwithstanding, uh, We'll see, like you said, I, I don't know. It's so early. It's. It, I, I think we'll know more in a week, right? If that game was an inflection point or if it was just a one-off. Uh, yeah. And that'll tell us a lot. If it is a one-off, like there's a reason to be very, very concerned. Like if he go, goes back to how, playing how he was before, there's a reason to be very, very concerned. I tend to think the shots will fall too, but I also think the gravity will go away if they don't. Uh, you know what I mean? Like he – It is. It's not like Steph, where like it's like, oh, he just missing shots because he's missing shots. Whatever, we still have to guard him. It's okay. He came back from injury. He's not making shots. He's also not curling around screens as fast. He's not moving as off the ball as fast. We don't have to be frantically chasing him. So some of the gravity goes away, and maybe he's just JJ Redick offensively, which is still good and still helpful. But like a less active JJ Redick is not good and not helpful. You know what I mean? And if that's what he is, like a less athletic version of that, less you know energy based then like i don't know is he just like a worse version of version of duncan robinson at that point
0: i mean duncan robinson was kind of a worse version of prime clay Thompson. right is he
2: is he, is he early is he early season duncan robinson basically then if he's not hitting yeah. those looks cuz the the defense is really like the, the ball watching is creating holes in the defense that weren't there when he was out they just did not have these defensive issues when clay was not playing and like they got shredded by indiana
0: yeah. Well, and part of it is he's yet to play a game with Draymond, which has has actually coincided then- with Steph's slump as well. So there's a little bit of that. It's hard to know how much of this is Clay, how much of this is Draymond, both with the Warriors and with Steph individually. But like you said, we'll know more in a week. And that's why I want to continue to kind of do these check ins and by hopefully by the playoffs, we'll, you know, check in and say, How's Clay Thompson doing? Oh, he looks like an all star. I don't know if that will happen, but that's my hope.
2: Yeah, I think that's everyone. Hope. Speaking of All Star starters, get announced tonight. They do. They do. Um, who did you have in your starting lineup again? Uh, in the East, I had Zach Levine, Trey Young, and then the three obvious ones in Giannis, KD, and Embiid. Yeah. I will. I will take KD out since he won't play in the game, just for the sake of argument. And I will. Put, oh man, that means another forward has to go in. After, after I spent so much time lamenting the fact that like there were no forwards to choose from. I, Jimmy, I brother. mean, I guess. I mean, yeah, you could put DeRozan in there, but yeah, it's Jimmy Butler. I'm just thinking the bottom of the roster, how much that's going to impact that. Um, and then then starters... the starting lineup, you
0: slide Chris Middleton into the lineup, into the roster. and Oh, God, it
2: sucks. Um, Middleton's not an all-star this year. Like, he's just not. But, he's yeah, but He was an all-star
0: last Butler. year, so this is a makeup for them. Uh,
2: no, he wasn't. Um, the history books will tell you. No, he wasn't. The history um, books?
0: I won't comment on the history books.
2: <laughs> but in the West, uh, I had... John Morant, Steph Curry, Nicole Jokic, Rudy Gobert, LeBron James. Who's the guy that if he's,
0: if he's announced as a starter, you'll be the most upset about? Oh, man. Most upset about. Who has like a realistic chance of being a starter? I,
2: th- I think probably DeRozan. Although I won't be that upset. Uh, I think if Luca starts the game, I will. Oh be yeah, a I didn't even frustrated. think about that. <laughs> yeah, if if Luca starts, I'll be upset. If he's looked better honestly, recently, but he has, yeah. but he still doesn't. Honestly, if like if like Devin Booker's in there, like I'll lose my mind. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good Devin one. Booker's the one. I'll go. Like you, you'll see me like, or if you were with me, you would see me like t- typing tweets and deleting them <laughs> like before I can hit send.
3: <laughs>
0: While we're on the Warriors, let's let's just finish with this. What do you make of the Steph Curry slump? What, where is your concern level right now? Because I've heard a lot of people saying, oh, it's nothing to worry about. He's going to bust out. Other people saying maybe he's not the same guy anymore. I don't know where I fall on that necessarily, but where do, what do you think of
2: the way he's played basically the last three weeks to a month? I think he's probably fine, and I think if he's not, it's because he's turning 34 in a month and a half, and like so, at some point the legs are just going to go. He runs around so much as it is that it might happen sooner than it does for other shooters.
0: And he's having his arguably his best defensive season in several years. And I think that probably has a, a tax on the offensive end too. Yeah, it's it's interesting in the nine years. It's not it's not like he's Ding up like best guards on the other team. No, but, but like I mean that. he is like, like I said, that that defense really moves on. He's trying. He's trying, yeah, he's trying in a way that like <laughs> James Harden doesn't, that Devin Booker doesn't, that a lot of Ja Morant, Donovan Mitchell. Don't. So it, it is harder to maintain your efficiency, especially when you take the kind of difficult shots he does. But I pulled the stats in the nine games, essentially since Clay came back and Draymond went out, Steph's averaging under 22 points a game on 30% shooting from three, 30%, 39% or 40% overall. Um, and 88% from the free throw line in those nine games. I don't know. I don't think he's quite the same guy. I think clearly... He's not playing, even even at the beginning of the season, I don't think he was playing at the level he was during his prime. I think, I think we're clearly in the post-prime Curry part of his career. I also don't think he's a 30% three-point shooter. I think he'll probably balance out around 40 by the end of the year. Um, but, you know, like th- this is, he's always going to have the gravity. He's always going to get the respect from defenses. But at a certain point, the shots are going to need to go in. And I get that not having Draymond is an important part of this because he does so much. I think, if anything, this stretch has underscored how important he is to their offense. We knew how important he was to their defense. But offensively, as a table setter, as a passer, as a screener, the way he creates open shots, not just for Steph, but for everyone else, is super, super important. And so now, not only is Steph not getting the same easy shots he used to, But other guys aren't getting the same shots they used to, which is requiring Steph to take more and more difficult shots to replace the easy shots that Draymond set up for other people. So I just think there's a lot on his plate right now. And I think having to kind of figure out where Clay falls in all of this is hurting that. I think not having Draymond is hurting that. Um, So there's just there's a lot at play here. You and I, you texted me the other day about uh, Ben Taylor's most recent podcast about how you know, the by the on-off numbers, Curry's still having roughly the same impact on the Warriors' offense, despite the fact that he's not hitting shots.
2: But which that's I think more suggests- about the, the bench is just significantly worse. Well, it could be, but I i mean... No, it is, like the off numbers are worse, right? Like the the yeah. off numbers are worse now than they were before. And so I just think that's more, like that's random variance sure. there. I think yeah. the comparison, as I told you when we were talking, like the comparison should be to his on numbers. How are they performing when he's
3: right. on the court? And they're worse. But only slightly.
0: And I think that's the interesting thing is that they're only like a point and a half per 100 possessions worse offensively with him on the floor now as they were before the slump, which that like this slump doesn't account for all of that. Like there there is still that's that's less drop off than you would expect based on his percentages, you know, which I, I think that's interesting
2: yeah i think it's interesting i also think it's a crazy tiny sample size and nothing to draw any of sort course of real conclusions yeah but i mean, uh, it, it but does kind of track i think what you said his career though yeah but i think what you said is important right like at some point the shots have to go in like i don't i mean it's only been what a week and a half since we did the awards pod yeah if that even i don't know that he would make my ballot still like i had him what sixth i think he's probably off the ballot still given how he's played of late like even with Kevin Durant no longer being on my ballot, like I I don't know, like maybe Gobert or Jimmy Butler takes that spot. I just feel like he is, the impact numbers are great and everything, but at some point, like you said, you have to make the shots. And like, he's he's not making uh, enough shots to be an MVP. He has a ton of value. There's no denying that. Clearly one of like the eight best players in the NBA this season. Like it's inarguable, but like he's not making enough shots, which is harming his team to some extent because he's not making shots. And he's still taking the same shot you know workload so it, it's more detrimental when he doesn't make them he's taking uh, he, he's missing more of his mid-range shots he's missing more uh, around the rim than he has basically since 2013 he's missing threes from the corner and from uh, above the break like he's the shot profile is nearly identical to what it usually is they're just not like he's just not making them as much and like at some point like he has to be dinged for that right like as awesome as he is and as much as we love him and as much as like his gravity itself has a massive impact on his team. He's got to make shots. Like he is just not as valuable if he's not making shots. And to me that that sort of it, it devalues what he's done from a gravity standpoint, even. Like you know what's better than getting open shots for Juan Tuscano Anderson? Steph Curry making getting open
0: shots for most other people?
2: Yes. Well, but that's my point, right? Like you would rather have Steph Curry taking and making those yeah. shots than Jordan Poole. Then, then Otto Porter than Andrew Wiggins like for as, as great as the gravity is he's still the guy you want taking and making those shots so I I mean I'm sure your mind hasn't changed about the MVP thing but I, I think like and if he especially if he continues playing like this if he continues not making shots like he's not even a, a, like he's not even in the others considered category at that point like at some point you have to do it like you you the, you can't be an MVP just because other teams in the league are scared that you might be the player that you're no longer are
0: well, um, but that's part of on-court value, too. I wouldn't go so far as to... I do.
2: I, I think so, too. But I think if, if, like, teams stopped playing him like that, like, his value is less impacted by what he's doing, right? The credit for his value is being given to the way teams are scheming for him rather than things he's actually doing.
0: That's actually why I think I would probably still have him in the conversation for being on the ballot is because his impact does go so far beyond just his scoring and his own efficiency. It's the so, impact that it has on everything
2: else, the ripple effect. So if if they stop playing him like that and he keeps making this number of shots, is he less valuable?
0: Yeah, but no but one's going to stop playing him like that. I don't know. Eventually they will. I mean, do you want to be the team that starts
2: letting Steph Curry take open threes? It's one game in the regular season. It, like if, if, if I were a playoff team that might play them in the postseason, and I played them in the regular season, I would absolutely try that. That's the time you try it. Like, and if he can't hit those shots, it's like, okay, we might have something Then you yeah. try it in game one of the postseason. If it works again, great. If it doesn't, you can revert back to how you played them before. But like, I think that is sort of the, like it, everyone acts as if it's so crazy to try such a thing. It's the regular season. You're making the playoffs. It's a good yeah. team. You're not, you're not guaranteed to beat them anyways. Why not try something that could help you down the road You know the Heat do it all the time, right? Like they were the first team to play a zone against the Sixers, and when when Simmons and Embiid were on the court together, and it proved that they could do something. But they had to try it in the regular season first. You need to you need to sort of use this time to find those scenarios or to find those uh, situations and those schemes that that can work out for you in the postseason. But uh, so you're saying with
0: that though is you would need like a five to ten game sample size of teams doing that. And like, if you're a player, that's what happened
2: though. If you remember that, like if the, once the heat did it, other teams started zoning up the Sixers too. I remember the Mavs did it like two games later, the Blazers did it too. So like, once you do it, other teams will be like, Oh, that's a good idea. Let's try and see if we can do it too. And then it it snowballs.
0: Well, but a, a key difference there is that playing zone or, you know, trying a different scheme and forcing worse shots is a different thing from Trying a different scheme, allowing better shots, and those shots just not going in. You know, like you well, could the, chalk that no, up yeah, to variance I don't think... more easily than you could say the Sixers not being able to generate the same quality of shots against a zone. So
2: no, you're you're testing how what the quality of the shot is. Right. right I don't think I'm it's that the, far. The off. Result... You're testing like the the you're not giving up good shots to Steph, right? You're because those shots are hard, he just makes them, right? Like the the contested threes and the the, right, the threes the where you're would be closing out. If teams didn't defend him the way they do, they would be easier, but they'd still be hard shots. So you're just all you're doing is hypo, like you're basically testing, like, okay, is this shot just as easy for him as it always was, or is this now a difficult shot for him, like it is for most? Of the league? I understand what you're saying about like the the heat, like limiting the Sixers' ability to get any shots. You you want to try to determine how good of a shot is this for Steph Curry moving forward? Uh, we know what it was for a decade, right? We know how easy those shots were him for a decade. We've seen what 30 games that maybe they aren't as good as shots for him anymore. Maybe he shouldn't be taking them. So maybe him taking them is better for your defense than, you know, giving up the gravity assist and a wide open Jordan pool for three, Yeah, you know, like, well,
0: no, no, yeah, I see what you're saying. I'm just, I think, well, two things, one, by devoting less attention to him and playing him differently, you are increasing the shot quality and and increasing Steph Curry's shot quality is always kind of a dangerous thing. And there's always the chance that it was always, I think the reason why he's slumping is because he's taking such difficult shots. And if he were able to take easier shots, maybe he wouldn't be slumping. The other thing is like you're saying, I, I think it would be interesting to try to test, you know, this theory that you're hypothesizing. I just think the results of that test would not be as would not necessarily be as indicative as the results of a test, like, say, playing a zone, because the result is based on whether the shot goes in or not, not how good the shot actually is for the shooter. You know what I mean? So it would just take I a longer I think, period I think of time the of the day, to
2: prove or disprove that theory. I think at the end of the day, it, it is this determining how, like, the quality of shot, just like a zone does. But because, it's just coming down to variance, whether it goes in or not. I mean, so to, like zones can be like that too right like if you're giving up an eight in you know, a wide open 19 footer in a zone if more go in then don't go in you're like all right we can't be in the zone anymore they're going to walk into these long twos that they can hit right like right, like Kemba we Walker that went that's
0: a worse shot than giving up a three or a layup
2: i mean it, it it isn't always though right depending on the shooter yeah right and that's the thing depending like you're trying to determine who the shooter is like, like you know what he was but you're trying to determine Who that shooter is now? Is it Steph Curry from a year ago where it's like, all right, well, we still got to like we've still got to be basically attached at his hip? Or is it J.J. Reddick, where you can play him a little more? You know, you got to be aware of where he's at at all times and you got to account for him. But if he gets like, you know, some open shots coming off a pin down or or off a flare screen, like it's not the worst thing in the world. If he's moving a little bit, maybe he's not as comfortable as he used to be. Can't get his legs into it. He's not going to make them as much as he used to.
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying. I just tend to think that it is the former. It, it's that he is still a level of
2: shooter. Yeah, it might be. But like, you got to find out. <laughs> like, because if if he's not, like, I think there's probably like a 10% chance, if not worse, that he isn't that guy anymore. But if he's not, like that completely changes how you guard the Warriors. And it also completely changes their upside. Right.
0: Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. And I, I think, let me throw something out to you. Is there a chance that, this slump that he's in right now actually becomes evidence in his favor for winning MVP. Like, let's say by the end of the season, he's up at 40% from three on the same volume, same difficulty, all that he has the statistical case relative to some of the other best offensive players in the league. And we're able to look back and say, see, even when he was shooting 30% from three, he was still this massively impactful offensive player. And then you add the fact that now he's a 40% three-point shooter and it only heightens the impact. So he goes from being a top five offensive player to the clear best offensive player. And that's why he's the MVP. Is, is there a chance that we're able to make that case by the end of the season?
2: I mean, maybe, but I think you can you can make that case for most MVP candidates, right? That like they're, uh, like, I don't think it should elevate his case. Like if, if Jokic is just playing like this all year, he's still a better candidate than the staff. Like, because there would be no slump. Right. Like there would just be right. like him being awesome uh, if, if Embiid like because even when Embiid wasn't hitting shots, teams were forced to double team him and forced to account for him in the mid range uh, in a way that sort of shifted how you defend. When when Giannis isn't uh, I mean, I guess this doesn't happen with Giannis because there's no such thing as a shooting slump when you shoot like 95 percent at the rim. Uh, Jimmy Butler goes in these stretches where he doesn't make shots. Right. But he's still incredibly helpful to the, to the heat and to winning. So I don't I don't think it amplifies his case. I think it's just a part of the case.
0: But I I think the Butler example you used was sort of fitting. Like he's impacting winning in all these different ways beyond his scoring. Steph does that too. It's just that he also happens to be an awesome scorer. So when the scoring isn't there, we notice it a little bit more. Like if he's having a, you know, like a low to mid-level all NBA type of offensive impact when he can't hit a shot, that's almost evidence for how good he is when he can hit a shot, right? Like if, if the baseline is this, if he's ice cold and this is still the offensive baseline, he's the best offensive player in the league. It it
2: might, it might not be the, the offensive baseline though. Like it might just be a variance in a small sample size opponents. They played weren't good, weren't as good or whatever. Like they were playing worse defenses. Like there's just not enough to like sort of encapsulate what we're trying to encapsulate, I guess. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like, if you look at when did the slump start early December, maybe the Sixers game. Yeah. I think we cursed Uh, him. We might've, but if you look at sort of their offensive performance since then, it's, it's not been like that crazy impressive, right? Like if you look at the teams they face, it's just like a a sample size of mostly bad defenses they faced. So the offense is going to look better. Right. Uh, And he did have good performance or that he did have, they did have good offensive performances against some good teams, but it's not like some massive stretch where you can say like, oh, they played the top 15 teams in the league yeah. consecutively and like yeah. they were killing it. Still they, they might have just played teams that suck so their offense looked better.
0: Yeah, that's well put. I think clearly we're, we're going to have to wait a little while for things to even out with Steph before we can say definitively how good or bad you know, where he stands in the league hierarchy. For now, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thanks to anyone who's stuck with us through the end of this episode. We appreciate that. You can leave us a rating and review of the thanks podcast. again to Julia
2: for what it's worth. Excellent guest.
0: Yeah. Our th- what is it, our third guest in, in the history I of the so. podcast? Yeah. Third
2: guest in the history of the
0: pod. So we're three for three. All our guests have been awesome.
2: We're we're like Tobias Harris from three when he's shooting well.
0: And that right. we aren't
2: we aren't going to shoot that much more because we're scared we'll miss.
0: We're going to make them all, but we're not going to take that many. Yes. Thank you to Julia. Please follow her work. She does a great job covering the bulls. For the chicago tribune i learn more about the bulls every single time i read her follow her on twitter as well i think it's by julia poe is the, the handle there you can leave a rating and review of this podcast on the player of your choosing um we appreciate those it, it really helps boost the show you can also send us an email at read and at gmail.com read and react podcast at gmail.com that's the best place to direct all of your thoughts questions concerns about the show if you have a question about the nba or about Really, anything related to read and react, you can send it there, and we'll try to answer it on or off the air. Otherwise, make sure to follow John covering Penn State athletics for the Center Daily Times. Follow me covering the NBA for the Step Back. My Western Conference All Star ballot came out today, so if you want to uh, circle back and get
2: another dose of that, <laughs> excellent choice. Going to Dejounte Murray over Devin Booker. I what did. a decision I, I would, by you. I was actually just me. reading
0: that. I, I went with Dejounte. I think feel his like case I, I feel like you
2: should have uh, you should have tagged me in the story like just I probably should hyperlinked have. Yeah. hyperlinked my Twitter account yeah that know. was a that was an oversight.
0: <laughs> other than that, everyone, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. And John, I will talk to you later. Talk to you soon.